On the podcast today, what do we mean by investment theme? And just what, again, is smart beta? We'll also talk with special guest Joe Smith, Portfolio Manager and Human Computer here at CLS. Joe will discuss the impact of tax reform on your portfolio and whether machines are going to replace us all. Welcome to the CLS's The Weighing Machine. I'm your host, Robin Murray. With me today is our Chief Investment Officer, Rusty Vanneman. He's not exactly with me. Rusty, where are you? <laughs> Hi, Robin. How are you? I, I, this week, I'm everywhere. I have, uh, let's see, this week, obviously, Nebraska, New York City, Florida, and Vermont. But that all said, you know, we are getting trades done. We are doing a lot of stuff. I just want to say my, my thing in New York was really, really cool. If I could just digress real fast here. I was able to ring the bell to New York Stock Exchange for a brand new ETF. Um, Entrepreneur Shares 30, it was it was a really cool event. It's um, It just goes to show to some of the topics that Joe and I will be talking about today, about multi-factor, smart beta, factor investing, and all the innovation going in the ETF world. So it was a cool trip, but I've been in a lot of airplanes this week. Yeah. All right. Well, First, as we start each podcast, let's begin here uh, with a check-in on the markets. How is November shaping up? Great. Well, you know what? This year could be the very first year ever in U.S. stock market history where each and every month is positive for the year. That could be the case for this month. As of last night, it's it's sort of a mixed bag right now. Um, The the market is uh, slightly coming into this week. Uh, but it's really a mixed bag. But the year-to-date numbers, the one-year numbers are still very strong. And as I like to point out, the three, five, and 10-year numbers are very illuminating. Again, the U.S. market has had great returns on all three of those time frames. Even the 10-year is basically back at the long-term average. The international markets, of course, phenomenal numbers this year, continue to lag, of course, in the three, five, and 10 years. We think they still have a lot of catching up to do. But Anyway, that's kind of where the numbers are right now. All right, looking good. Okay, before we get into the meat of what we'll be talking about today, I want to mention the weekly three. Uh, We've been making a few branding changes here at CLS. We recently changed our podcast format, as listeners will know. It's a little longer, and we've renamed it CLS is the Weighing Machine, which we discussed here a few weeks ago, the thinking behind that. And we've also made another change to our weekly commentary. Tell us about this new idea. Yeah. Well, when it comes to the weekly commentary, it's it really isn't a change in the material, but it's de- definitely a change in the title. And we basically were writing about three topics each and every week anyway, but we just called it the weekly three because I think it just sort of jumps out. These are three things that we think investors and advisors need to know about CLS and what we're thinking about markets and the portfolios. So I think it's kind of an important twist. It's, you know, Investing or like good investment management is more than just a return. And at CLS, we like to think that you know our saying is we empower advisors to help investors have great experiences. And really, an experience, an investor experience, is really sort of it's it is the number, but it's that whole emotional experience around that portfolio. Ultimately, you want them to be comfortable. So it's about education, it's about communication, it's about client service. And if we can make our weekly three somehow more appetizing, more interesting, then we want to do that. That's obviously uh, why we made a lot of changes to the weighing machine as well and obviously extended the format to hopefully this format, which is a lot more useful to investors and advisors. All right. I mean, do you put out a lot of communication here at CLS, not just the weekly three in this podcast? Give us a quick list. Oh, boy. There's so many different things. Okay. Let me think. So... Probably our most well-read items, of course, are our quarterly material. So the quarterly reference guide, which, of course, we have a webinar, which is 
is associated with that each month, and it's actually one is tomorrow. Uh, we have the uh, quarterly, uh, just the quarterly market outlook. We have a lot of monthly materials, including something called the chart pack, which is very useful. Many advisors love to look at that because they get a good insight on what we're doing with the portfolios. We do a lot of white papers. I mean, Joe on the call today is on a lot of white papers. There's just a lot of different things. We do a lot of videos, of course. And again, it just, just all goes into total experience. And hopefully we're able to get a clear, simple message across where investors are ultimately comfortable and confident uh, regarding their portfolios here at CLS. All right. Well, it is that time of year when people start asking us about the CLS investment themes and whether we're planning to make any changes for the new year. So first, let's go over what we mean by investment themes. Well, it, the, the investment themes are really it's sort of the unifying message behind all the CLS portfolios and strategies. We have a lot of them. And so what is sort of common between them? And, and we don't have just one portfolio manager running everything. We have 13 people on the team. They all have their own biases and preferences. Everybody just kind of brings their own sort of history and experience in managing the portfolios. So what is it that unifies a risk budget 80 portfolio in one place and a risk budget 80 portfolio in another place? And we like to think what brings it all together are the, the CLS investment themes. You know, it is interesting. It, it, we have sort of introduced new themes the last two years in January. And we're really not trying to do them at the beginning of the year. They could actually change in theory at any point during the course of the year. Uh, they are determined by the investment committee, which does meet on a quarterly basis. So the investment committee does have to approve them. And all I can say is right now, behind the scenes, we are in debates right now about how the themes could change. That said, the three themes that we have right now are still great, and we can still have them for many quarters ahead. All right, let's go over those three themes. What have we got? Yeah. Yeah, so the three themes, first of all, global value. So obviously we're global managers in the first place, but this theme is really capturing two things. One, the international markets still are incredibly attractive. The relative valuations and many other factors support investing even more in international markets than the typical allocation would be. It also means that the word value is that obviously we're, we're value-oriented managers anyway at CLS Investments, but we tend to put an emphasis on relative valuations. And right now, just the way the market has gone, growth stocks have had an incredible run really since uh, the bear market bottom back in 2009. And we shifted our portfolio finally away from growth stocks about a year ago, over a year ago, in towards value-oriented stocks. So those would be sectors that would include like the financial sector, for instance. So that's, that's item number one. That's global value. A big driver in terms of our performance this year. The second one is smart beta. And we talk about a lot. We're going to be talking a lot about a lot on this podcast, too. And smart beta is a type of ETF, which is your non-traditional. It's not vanilla. It's not market cap weighted, but it's actually based off of factors such as maybe value investing or momentum investing. And currently, we have about half of our equity positions in smart beta, about third of our overall portfolios. And those numbers continue to increase. Again, a very important part of understanding how CLS portfolios behave. And then the third theme is creative diversification. And you can say this is always going to happen at CLS, is that we're always trying to figure out creative ways to diversify a portfolio. What this really means is that when it comes to the bond market, interest rates may be low, but you can still get value. There's still opportunities to enhance value in the fixed income markets. You can adjust your duration. You can adjust your credit exposure or your sector exposures. But it also means you can use alternative investments and you can use commodities. We've been talking a lot about commodities of late. It's a beat-up asset class. We've had a bias to sort of add to those positions. They're still very small positions, but we still have a bias to add to that. 
And that is part of our creative diversification theme as well. So those are really kind of our three themes. All right. Well, I do want to talk a little bit more about smart beta. That's a big one for us at CLS, as you mentioned. And it's also one that's likely to stick around no matter how many changes are in the works. Um, and it's, But it's still not really understood by a lot of investors. So how does smart beta work? Yeah. Well, this is great. Smart beta ETFs are, again, as you just mentioned, uh, more and more investors are using them, more advisors are using them, more institutional investors are using them, more long-term holders are using them. It's, uh, But the only thing that's holding back the growth even more is that still many investors still don't completely understand what smart beta is. And I don't want to steal too much thunder from Joe because Joe really is an expert in smart beta. He speaks and writes on it all the time. But um, obviously, we're all trying to explain what smart beta is. And I think there's two things that are really important in terms of sort of the value add from smart beta. But, but I guess first, the definition. First of all, two basic uh, definitions is one that smart beta ETFs, because they are ETFs, that means they are passively managed, and that means they are tracking a benchmark, and that benchmark is basically built by using a factor, again, I mentioned such as value or momentum. The second thing is that it's, well, it's those factors, you know, like like value or momentum. Uh, we also look at things such as small caps and minimum volatility. There's, there's like a handful of factors on the equity side and two on the fixed income side that we like to look at. But with the value add, and this is kind of the important part, so the value add, first of all, is that smart beta offers value to investors because you're basically capturing the essence of active management. And when it's active management, like actively managed mutual funds, but at a fraction of the cost. So first of all, in terms of capturing the essence of active management, there is there are multiple studies out there. Some like say that... Uh, Factors capture 70% of active management. Some say over 100%. So let's just say it captures most of the essence of active management. But the average actively managed mutual fund has still an expense ratio of about 1.3%. And the average smart beta ETF is about one-third of 1%. So you're getting a great deal just in terms of the cost, where you're still capturing most of what those actively managed mutual funds did. So first of all, investors are getting a good deal. The second thing is that factor investing works. And when you look at the five equity factors that we like to look at at CLS, and you go back over 20-plus years and look at them in a global context, is that on average, they have added over 200 basis points of value per year. Uh, they do better even in down years. On, on down years, on average, they've added closer to 500 basis points of value over the market, above and beyond. So I think that's really compelling when investors can hear, hey, I'm getting a good deal, and these things have worked over time. And I think that there is more of a sense of comfort in using smart beta ETFs. Okay, great. Well, I do want to turn to our special guest here today, Joe Smith. He is in the studio with me. Hey, Joe, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, well, we're going to talk about the weekly three that you just recently published. Um, and taxes is one topic that you talked a lot about. They're front and center on the political stage right now. Um, President Trump wants to pass a major tax cut, and Congress is looking at various ways to reform the tax code. Nothing is certain as to what will, will or won't eventually pass. We obviously don't know that right now. But one element of the bill that has a lot of investors concerned is capital gains. Do we need to be worried about this? Yeah. Well, you know, you know, when you think about taxes, what's always interesting with that conversation is really what you owe. I mean, you, even as investors, you make an investment, the government, you know, takes some portion of that in terms of kind of what you realize as profit ultimately. And, you know, whatever is remaining is ultimately what you get to keep. 
What's interesting about that, though, is, you know, um, as I wrote about in the weekly, is that recently there was a um, pretty well uh, written article from Investment News talking about, you know, anticipated capital gains by a lot of the major mutual fund distributors out there. And although only at the time of the writing, you still had about 38% who had reported at that point, um, many were actually expecting to be paying um, distributions out. Um, for taxable for the taxable year for um, for 2017, roughly above 10 percent or more. So you know, if you're a you know fund investor out there and you know thinking about you know your tax bill for next year, you know there, there's greater odds where that could potentially be higher. Um, you know, ultimately that obviously translates as a potential headache. You know, when you think about a- April 15th. Right. And that is just around the corner. Um, and, and I want to ask, too, aren't tax implications um, another reason that CLS likes to use ETFs in portfolios? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll start off by saying, you know, as portfolio managers and Rusty's, you know, probably one of the biggest advocates for how we think about, you know, managing money, it's we're always very sensitive to the notion of taxes um, where we can be. So, you know, understanding not only simply kind of the vehicle options out there that um, is an important consideration for us, but also how we think about, you know, managing our own capital gains embedded in our portfolios is a very important consideration to maximize after-tax return. Uh, But, you know, to your point, though, you know, one of the biggest things about ETFs is that the structure in itself provides a lot of features to help minimize taxes even further. Um, And what do I mean by that? So, you know, when you think about the typical um, mutual fund or whatnot, um, if a investor comes in, at any given point in time, um, you know, if the fund pays out, you know, subsequent to that, a capital gain at the end of the year, even if you had owned it, let's say, less than 30 days, you know, you are exp- experiencing that same taxable hit as other investors who have been in there for, let's say, the past year, two, three, five years or so. Um, which can be a little bit problematic, especially, you know, it wasn't your actual economic experience. Uh, ETFs are a little bit different. So when you purchase an ETF, um, you know essentially you gain more control over your your tax consequences because you can have better control of deferring those capital gains till you actually sell the shares themselves. Um, inside the ETF, though, a lot of times what will happen is that the portfolio managers will work every single day as flows are coming in and out of the fund to effectively, you know, minimize kind of the potential, you know, capital gains in the portfolio. So, um, you know, ETFs, essentially, they provide a very great mechanism, if you will, to just make sure that, you know, the overall um, tax situation for the incline is going to be fairly minimized. So that's one really big reason why we like them, obviously, in addition to how transparent they are and um, how cheap they are. Right. Um, Okay. And this tax conversation in Washington is just another element that's adding to the uncertainty that investors may be feeling about the future. So I want to turn now to what you wrote about replacing emotions with math. What did you mean by that? Yeah. Well, you know, I was actually on the road last week in Fresno, California, talking with with a lot of clients. And, you know, it's it's interesting to kind of get people's take on how they may feel about the markets right now. Um, you know, obviously, everyone has probably enjoyed a, a pretty good year, especially with the equity markets moving higher. Um, and so there hasn't been as, mo- as much, co- uh, much concern about, you know, what's going on with their money. Um, but, you know, I think when, when you think about that versus more stressful periods of the markets, um, it definitely can change behavior when it comes to how you may think about your money going forward. And so, you know, 
what I wrote about was really a highlighting kind of how we think about the the problem around risk, if you will, um, but b trying to kind of illustrate you know some of the things that are important for how we you know identify what risks matter um, in your portfolio to ensure that you can stay on track for the long term, and so. That essentially gets back towards the notion of risk budgeting and, and the importance of risk budgeting. Um, and I think you know when you think about the concept, it's it's so simple, but yet it works. Um, risk budgeting is always ensuring that your risk is targeted to what you know is comfortable for you as the investor in terms of the ability and capacity to bear risk. And no matter what happens with market volatility, whether it's Market volatility on an absolute basis could be 25, 30% in a given year, or even what it is right now at you know near you know multi-year lows, that that risk number is always going to be constant and, and consistent with kind of how things are measured relative towards the broader markets. And talking about measuring risk, we've also re- recently launched a really cool tool that I know you're excited about, Joe. It's going to help investors and advisors figure out figure out their risk tolerance. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, I think um, you know our teams internally have done a really good job with this tool. Um, it's the risk budget calculator, if you will. It's available on CLSinvest.com. Um, but it's really cool because of the fact that it essentially takes a lot of the questions we normally would utilize uh, with our advisors to survey their clients to determine the risk budget score, and provides you an easy way to access that. Um, and so, you know, when people think about kind of like, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about investing, I'm, I really want, want to put my money to work, but I, I'm not really sure how much risk I can actually take um, relative towards my goals and my time horizon. I think this is a really great tool to give you, you know, a quick and dirty kind of estimate of what that potential could be. Cool. All right. Well, that I hope that our listeners will check that out because it is pretty cool. Um, and that also brings us to the final segment that you wrote about in your weekly three, which is technology. There's a lot of doomsday talk out there about machines taking over everything. But just like the example of that risk budget calculator, you write that technology is more likely to be used to improve the investor experience, not replace the human beings behind money managing. So question is, are you sure about that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny when you hear all these conversations, whether it's about the notion of robo-advisors or, you know, the ongoing, you know, expansion of Bitcoin and how excited people get about that as to, you know, or even the talk around artificial intelligence, you know, serving as a primary mechanism for picking and choosing securities in a portfolio. You know, it, it, begs, it begs the question of whether or not technology are going to replace humans. Um, I almost kind of think about it as when you think back to the, the original Terminator movies, if you will, is Skynet going to become self-aware? <laughs> um, but, you know, it's the, the thing that I think people should keep in mind is that, you know, Obviously, technology can be a great benefit um, when it's used properly. Um, the best thing that's probably happened for Wall Street over the last you know, 10, 20 years or so has really been the improvement in terms of computing power. Um, you know, I, I always kind of remember t- the days where you, know, you could buy a computer and it was, it was really cool if you had like 64 megabytes of memory. <laughs> You know, nowadays I complain about you know not having you know a terabyte or two terabytes of of, of data to, to play with, um, but um, you know with that you know I think you know what's happened over the last couple of years is really being able to take that technology or take those efficiencies and translate them into a better better experience for clients. So, you know, one of the biggest things that we think about at CLS is obviously risk budgeting and also measuring risk in multiple forms, and so. 
you know, the, the, the neat thing that, you know, I've been able to you know, participate with a lot of my other colleagues is the ability for us to take some of these tools and actually implement them to give us, you know, deeper dives and, and looks at, you know, how risk may show up in our portfolios. Um, you know, I also think it's great because of the fact that it, it doesn't limit us to, you know, sticking with just one way to evaluate risk. Um, it gives us, you know, a lot of productivity in terms of being able to look at things very quickly in a very short amount of time. Um, to give you some perspective, you know, some of these calculations that we may look at internally, if you were to go back and ask somebody to do that 20 years ago, it'd probably take them a full day with, you know, a, you know, shorthand calculator to try to do it themselves. And, you know, we have the capability now to do that within a fraction of a second. So. All right. Well, interesting stuff. As always, Joe, thanks for coming in. Great insight today. Rusty, do you have any questions for Joe this week? Oh, yeah. I want them now. (laughs) So this is going to be a fun part. I have, you know, we've been doing the third part of the weekly three as an interview format. So either CLS investment professionals or outside guests. And so this is Joe's second time on here. I'm going to switch up a little bit because last time Joe knew what I was going to ask him and he has no (laughs) idea what I'm going to ask him for here. I have 15 questions. However, that sounds like a lot. I know. It sounds like a lot. Uh, Some of them will be multiple choice. Some will be short answer. And some basically, well, well, the base will be short answer as well. It'll be kind of a fun little segment coming up as well. Joe has a panicked look in his eye now. I just want to tell you. I I know. Grass school is over. Come on now. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I really think these questions are going to help listeners really know more about you, Joe, both personally and professionally, and really just for listeners to get more insight into the investment professionals here at CLS. So are you ready? Yeah. All right. All right. So the first one's pretty easy. And uh, it's, it's again, that time of year, holiday season is coming up and CLS investments. We have a lot of our own traditions, including our own team. And one of the traditions that we have every year is that we like to give books to each other. And so we're going to be setting up that up pretty soon. And you're probably, if you're not our most prolific reader on the team, you're darn near it. What are some of your book recommendations for this year? Oh man, that's a good one. That is such a good one. Well, you know, Rusty, I'll probably have to adjust this for the non-technical books I like to read. Um, you know, actually, I will say a book that was given out as part of our holiday party last year that I reread again, um, actually a couple of weeks ago, was The Undoing Project by um, Michael Lewis. And I think it's a great book for anyone out there who's ever interested in the notion of, you know, behavior, psychology, understanding kind of how we tick, um, gives a a well thought out story behind two gentlemen who basically pioneered the notion of behavioral investing. So that'd probably be my my recommendation to everyone. Definitely go take a look at it. That's a a good one. All right. So that's a good tip. So now the second thing is, again, among all our teammates – that some of you guys are pretty early risers. I mean, you get up so early. I I mean, I think it's just crazy. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your morning routine that you have. Yeah. uh, So, you know, I probably rise really, really early. In fact, I probably get up on average roughly around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning central time. Um, My routine um, really probably was born out of the notion of working for other firms and, you know, getting up very early to get into the um, office well before market open. Um, so, you know, things I like to do, you know, very first thing I'm always checking is what happened overnight in Asia in terms of um, overall performance with the Nikkei or looking at the Shanghai or Shenzhen um, 
indices. And second to that, you know, getting a, a quick take on what's going on with the bond market. Um, and then, you know, after that, I probably spend at least a good hour in terms of reading or researching things that, you know, I'm currently looking into. Uh, some days that may be, you know, just reading, you know, white papers um, from prominent investors out there. Other days that could be reading, um, you know, investment newsletters or um, blogs that are out there by others. But then pretty much, you know, by the time I'm, you know, hopping in my car, um, driving to the office, you know, sometimes that's, you know, even listening to the podcast, um, you know, whether it's, you know, this podcast or other podcasts that are out there. Um, I, I will admit, I definitely have um, that um, Starbucks mobile app that I use pretty frequently while I'm driving. I would not recommend that to anyone. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I, I, I definitely use that as a way to have my breakfast on the go um, as I'm getting to the office. And then, you know, pretty much from there, I'm, you know, as I'm, you know, trying to get ready for our daily huddle um, call in the morning. Um, sometimes I'm, you know, spending quite a bit of time just looking at some of our, you know, risk statistics in terms of the risk report or trying to, you know, understand kind of where we are um, for certain portfolios that I'm responsible for, um, just in terms of you know, sizing up cash or thinking about, you know, changes we may be thinking to make and have discussed as a team. So that that's just a little bit of my morning. That's not even before eight o'clock. <laughs> That is that is quite the information intake, without a doubt. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to a different format of questions. So this is really basically multiple choice. I'm going to give you two options. You have to pick which one you prefer over the other, and just real simple reason why. And, of course, since you have no idea what I'm asking, it might be hard keeping it simple. But first of all, what do you like more, active or passive money management? Active. Short answer, why? You know, I – think the notion of active management can take a lot of forms. Um, I think a lot of people may think about that as traditional stock picking. I actually translate that more as engineering, if you will, a rate of return. And you know, there's a lot of ways to accomplish that. Cool. What about when it comes to money management, what about between discretionary using qualitative inputs or systematic being more quantitative? money management. What do you prefer, discretionary or systematic money management approaches and why? You know, I probably fall in the systematic camp. Um, a lot of that probably has more to do with my training and background um, in terms of quantitative methods, econometrics, um, statistics. So, you know, when I'm thinking about certain decisions I want to make in a portfolio, everything comes back towards the odds or likelihood of things occurring rather than just trying to follow a narrative. Cool. I figured you'd go with that answer. So, who is your favorite? Who is your favorite quant between these two individuals? Rob Arnott from Research Affiliates or Cliff Asnes from AQR? Who's been more impactful on you and your thinking between those two quants? Oh gosh, Rob there's, Arnott or there's, Cliff there's Asnes? No, there, it's it's clearly Cliff Asnes by a mile. Um, you know. I, I read both. I, I read both gentlemen's work. Um, you know, I think that the thing that I like about Cliff Asness is his brutal honesty um, and ability to, you know, not only simply do research, but make sure it factually checks out with what other practitioners have said and thought in the industry. Not to say that Arnott doesn't do that, but, uh, you know, I, I will say I've, I've seen it quite a bit more consistently from uh, Mr. Asness. Okay, this next question. So you have an MBA from one of the top uh, MBA programs in the country, Carnegie Mellon Tepper School, and you have a CFA. If you could only have one, 
of those who, as an investment professional, or would recommend only one to an investment professional, which one would you recommend? Oh, man, that's a tough one. I still have to say CFA. Um, you know, I think my educational experience at Carnegie Mellon was great because it helped to fortify a lot of skills that I use every day. But the CFA, is, it's just a life-changing um, accolade, if you will. You know, the experience of going through that, the long hours you study, the you know friendships you form in the process, you know, there's nothing that could probably replace that with any level of education. Gotcha. Good. This is fun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, cool. We're almost we're almost halfway done too. Now some of the faster ones. Well, this one may not be so fast either, but um, these are more short answers. So again, you are a smart beta and factor investing expert. It's one of the reasons why you were hired by CLS Investments. Which of all the factors out there do you feel deep down inside is the most underappreciated investment factor? Is there one that jumps out at you? Yeah. One that you think the industry doesn't give enough credit to? Yeah. Which one is that? I, I have to say minimum volatility or low volatility. Yeah. Any reason why? You just think the industry doesn't – I mean, many firms do accept it. You're right. Many sort of just ignore it. You know, I, th I think it's a combination that, you know – Again, I, I think for the majority of the industry, people like fitting stories behind what they're investing in. Um, so, you know, buying something that doesn't move around a lot could look boring in a lot of instances. But, um, you know, I always kind of go back to the notion of, you know, managing a portfolio is just as important to find great opportunities, uh, especially when you think about valuations and you know, the importance of other metrics like quality or momentum or sentiment or whatnot, but also thinking about, you know, how stable is your, your volatility profile or, or risk profile over time. And so I actually kind of look at the notion of lower risk in a portfolio as a eighth wonder of the world, if you will, when you start thinking about things like returns and how they come together over time. So yeah, that's, 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 that's just my, my, my two cents. I could probably give you two hours over that. <laughs> You know, the next question is one I've I've covered money managers really for most of my career. Before ETF portfolios, I was building mutual fund portfolios. One thing I did is, is obviously I had to meet with all the portfolio managers that I invested in. It's the way we uh, we the way we invested. So a question that's sort of related to that is well, one thing I used to do I would ask portfolio managers like of other portfolio managers who do you respect or who among your own team do you respect. So my twist here is. A lot of people at CLS Investments are fantasy football players. Which one of your colleagues would you pick to draft for you? If you had to play in a, in a fantasy football league, who among all of the CLS investment people would you pick to draft for you? Who do you think is the best? I know. Oh, gosh. These are the fun questions right these are, here. Yeah, these are great. So, you know, I have to say, based on knowing generally how everyone drafts, I would typically go with my guy out of New York, Mark Pfeffer, but I have to give it to Mark Matthews. Like that guy just thinks, lives, and breathes value investing. And I even think fantasy football is all about value investing. So it'd have uh, to be Mr. Answer. Matthews. The other, the other two people who might get up as early as you too. Okay, so now we're gonna move to the next thing. This is sort of the fun thing I think is basically I'm gonna give you a topic. And I basically want you to tell me if that topic generally you think in the industry is overrated or underrated and why. So the first thing is, 
let's go back to factors. Again, you're a big expert on factors. A lot of people like to identify growth as a factor, like earnings growth. Is that an overrated factor or an underrated factor? Overrated. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I actually think a lot of times when people talk about the notion of growth, it's a quick form for momentum, actually. I, I actually think if, if you were to you know, parse out what really are key drivers in portfolios, value is definitely one of those components. Um, but I think it's, um, you know, diversifying cousin, if you will, is actually momentum, not necessarily growth. What about the topic of cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin, over or underrated? Oh, gosh, you know, I have to say overrated. Um, and I'm sorry for if anybody out there is listening and owns Bitcoin, you know, may the force be with you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I always go back to the notion of, you know, does something make sense as a long term investor? You know, is it something that has economic rationale to it? Does it, you know, provide properties that are necessary relative towards achieving long-term success as an investor? I'm sure, you know, some of those properties are there for Bitcoin. I think other components of it, though, it's just a little bit too speculative for my taste. So I have to definitely say overrated. Okay, next topic. What about the, um, the Washington Huskies foot, college football team? Underrated. Absolutely underrated. You know, I, I will just say this as a proud Husky myself that, um, you know, the Pac-10 doesn't get a lot or Pac-12 doesn't get a lot of love for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're on the West Coast, so the games are much later in the day and nobody watches them. Number two, surprisingly, the teams beat up on each other. So there's not a 10-0 team every year. And I think number three, specifically for Washington, we just probably have one of the more efficient teams in college football that no one will respect because we don't run up the score of 55 to nothing. So, No bias at all in that answer? Completely rational. No, completely right, rational. Point. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about the idea of, um, of fee compression in ETFs? Overrated. Yeah, you know... So I'm going to premise this as saying someone who used to you know, work in the ETF business on both sides of the house on this, so a firm that launched ETFs that probably had above average fee ratios, and a firm that was trying to be the cheapest in its respective liver categories. And I think you know, what people tend to forget you know, when it comes to thinking about investment choice is that fees are an important component. Um, but at the same time, you still have to evaluate um, what you're choosing to purchase you know, beyond the merits of price. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of times what, what we do a really good job here at CLS is the notion of looking under the hood, if you will, to really find value and in, in gems out there um, and, and ETFs that, you know, even if they may not be the cheapest, they're going to make up for it in terms of really kind of what they're designed to do, the type of exposure, the, the you know, how they manage the risk profile associated with that. And, and I think that really is what you have to put together in addition to just thinking about the price to arrive at a, at a solid portfolio. Yeah, great. Well, you kind of touched upon this, the next question, you kind of touched upon this in your weekly three this week, but the idea of artificial intelligence impacting the financial services industry near term. Oh, gosh, I feel like I'm on a streak here. Um, I have to say overrated. Um, you know, I've, I, I'll say I've heard this story before in some capacity. Um, 
you know, when I was in grad school, a lot of times people talk about, oh, well, machine learning is the wave of the future. It's going to do all these marvelous things. And then you, the very next question you would have to ask somebody is like, well, A, how's it being applied and who's applying it? You never would really get a good answer on that. So, you know, I'm going to go with overrated just because I think we're still really far out before people figure out how to properly apply these tools to actually solve real problems. Yeah. I mean, I on that point, I remember people talking about how computer programs were going to wipe everything out back in the 80s. I also remember I, I was hired back in the 80s, too, to introduce uh, spreadsheets to uh, this investment group I was at the time, and it was just mind-blowing to a lot of people, and people worried about their jobs. But anyway, I guess I goes to how old I am. Okay, I got two more questions. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Over or underrated? Long-distance relationships? Underrated. <laughs> <laughs> underrated. Underrated. You know – I just, I just say, obviously, Joe has a rock star fiance on the East Coast, so you know, um, just want to underrated. There are advantages to that. Yeah. And the last question is a big one, and it is, I think, kind of controversial because some people are fans, some people are not. But what do you think? And that is the whole concept of ETF innovation, over or underrated? Ah, uh, gosh, very controversial. You know. I'll have to say, based on the current environment right now, overrated. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it has more to do with, you know, when you go back and look at kind of where ETFs came from and what was driving the innovation, a lot of it was really basically the notion of giving you more than what you had before as an uh, investor. And I think kind of, you know, when you think about the notion of going from just simply offering exposure to now smart beta, if you will, all of those have been really great innovations for the end investor. They've definitely yielded some benefits. Um, you know, I, the, the thing I always go back to, and, and we have this conversation with sponsors all the time, is that innovation has to come with the notion of improving upon something. And so... You know, for every product developer out there, if you're listening to this, I, I continue to say that I will challenge you to not only just think about if something is a simple story, but if it makes sense for the end investor. And I think that goes back to the value for us at CLS in terms of, you know, why we spend so much time diligently to identify what are really the best ETFs out there to purchase on behalf of our clients. Great. Well said. Well, those are my 15 questions, Joe. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You know, that that wasn't Rob. as painful as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. Robin, yes. I, that's all I have. Okay. All right. Well, I guess that will do it for this edition of CLS is the Weighing Machine. Rusty, it was great to chat with you. Enjoy your travels. Be safe. Thank you. Yeah. Joe, Thank thanks as much. always for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. And to all of our listeners, thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments.